0: Hey, it's Martine here. Just wanted to note that today's episode deals with suicide. It can be difficult to hear, so keep that in mind. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 23rd. Almost a year into the pandemic, we all know what the coronavirus can do to our bodies. More than 250,000 Americans have died. Millions of people around the world are sick. But there are other non-physical effects, too. The emotional and psychological toll of the pandemic. The other subtle ways it's changed the world around us, and will continue to do so, well after there's an effective vaccine.
1: We're putting like $175 billion into the hospitals during this pandemic. Like less than 1%, like a fraction of 1% has been put into mental health, which is kind of shocking.
0: That's national health reporter William One. He's bringing us the first in a series of stories we're doing this week, looking at some of the unseen effects of the pandemic on people's lives. <laughs>
2: When he was a freshman, I would still take Christian to the bus stop, and the bus stop is only a couple football fields away. And I know that the other parents would look at me like, why are you taking your kid to the bus stop as a freshman in high school? And I always told Christian this, I said, Christian, you know, the reason why I take you to the bus stop still. He goes, why? He goes, I said, Christian, the reason why I still take you to the bus stop is that gives me just five more minutes with you every single day that I've got.
1: Christian Robbins was this 16-year-old teenager in in Richland, Washington. His father—
2: My name's Ted Robbins.
1: God was telling me about him. He's just an incredible kid. Just an enormous amount of love for his younger brother and younger sister, was really into sports.
2: He was highly intelligent. To give you an example, for his intelligence level, he was only one of three students in all of our large area that we have that was actually going to college as a sophomore. And I think probably a lot of the favorite memories were camping that we've got where we would go out and I would teach them how to fish and we would basically just be you know, alone with each other that we've got. On the weekends, we would go to camping stores and, and get little teeny camping gears and little things to improve our next trip. And then we would basically come back to the house, always telling my wife, Sarah, we have to have this. We've got to have this extra gadget. We've got to have this other thing that we have to try to to help our, our, our next camping trip.
1: He was creating an app to help others struggling with mental health because he himself in the last year of his life had gone through a lot of mental health struggles. He had started suffering from depression.
2: Bipolarism runs really heavy through my wife's side of the family. So as he started to get older from his standpoint, we were keeping an eye on him and we were concerned about him, but we were checking literally on a daily basis. Christian, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And then it was in September of 2019, last year, where Christian came to us and basically said, um, and he called me up to his room that he has and he says, dad, I'm not going to make it through the night. He goes, I don't want to live, um, and I just don't want to be here.
1: Ever since that point, he and his dad had been working on his um, mental health and getting him help, therapy, medication, and he had been doing better. He was, things were going well. He was feeling alive and, and happy, and then the pandemic hit, and things just kind of really fell apart. His father was kind of, he kind of could see the storm coming, you know. He knew things were going to get hard. And what really, what really was tough on them, I think, is that Christian had these three best friends that would come over every weekend to his house.
2: During pre-COVID, he was having his friends that would come over, his support network was coming over on a regular basis. He was going to high school in a local area they got for a couple classes. Then he was going to college for the rest of the day. So in the interaction between himself and the other kids through college and through the school and through the teachers and counselors Then his friends were coming over every single weekend that they've got supporting him and loving him, keeping an extra eye on him from the standpoint.
1: And when he lost that, you know, they could no longer come during the pandemic. Um, One of his best friends, he had an immunocompromising disease and just couldn't be exposed to others at all. And so when he lost that kind of support group, Um, in his life. It just, he, he started really struggling. You know, he thought that everyone hated him. He had all these trophies, you know, in his room from his sports and karate and stuff. And despite all that, he just felt like he was not a worthy person and that no one liked him.
2: But as a family, we were doing more to try to help with that. We were playing board games almost every night. We were just having an interaction. And I remember sitting downstairs here in my office where I'm at right now. And I remember listening on multiple occasions where Christian was playing with Ethan or playing with Sophia. And he was laughing harder than I've ever heard him laugh before and having so much joy. And I'm just thinking to myself, this COVID is bad, but he's going to make it through the COVID. He's going to be okay with this. A
1: month into the pandemic, One morning, you know, his dad woke up and they looked all over the house. They couldn't find him. He started just searching the entire town, driving everywhere he could think of. And I think sometime in that afternoon, the police kind of knocked on their door and said, you know, there's been this body found. We believe it's your son. And he had killed himself.
0: After Christian died, what has it been like for his dad?
1: He very patiently kind of described to me just the, the weeks after that, you know, he went through all the stages, you know, of a lot of anger at his son and the situation at God and at the virus, at the leaders of this country and how this virus has been handled.
2: So I would go out to Christian's gravesite um, multiple times during a daytime. I would sneak away from the house. We would go once with the family. And then I would sometimes um, go out and visit Christian at his gravesite without anybody being there that I have got. And just literally just breaking down from my end, just forever believing all of the what ifs, thinking, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? Why, when I was an hour and a half in the car with the kid the day before, how come I couldn't see it?
1: He told me this one day that he, he was visiting Christian's grave. He goes to his, Christian's grave every day without fail. It's been months and he still goes every day. And what he saw there really shocked him. You know, there were these two girls sitting there. He recognized them from Christian's funeral, that they were friends. And one of them was sobbing and he asked her what, why, you know, if everything was okay. And she said, you know, she, I've been struggling with depression too. Recently, I've been having suicidal thoughts and I tried to get help. You know, I even called these hotlines and the crisis center basically told her, we have 16 beds, they're all full, we'll put you on a wait list.
2: What they told me was, is that you as a parent don't realize how bad it is for the youth today. You don't realize how many of Christian's friends have contemplated suicide. You don't realize how depressed we are. You don't realize how hard this is.
1: And so that kind of was a turning point for his father, I think. This idea that, you know, it's too late for me and for Christian, but there are all these kids out there, all these families struggling, and we should be doing more.
2: I can't bring Christian back. No matter how much I want or I try from my standpoint, I can't bring him back. But what I can do is try to save other children.
1: He's been pushing schools. He's been talking to parents, trying to advocate, bring experts to his neighborhood and um, trying to push people and us as a country just to do more for people who are struggling with suicide.
2: And now I'm I'm a parent that is posted up on a corner with or without people. And I'm putting signs in the ground. I'm holding signs up, trying to bring awareness to mental health and what the school is not doing by not talking about.
0: So how significant of a problem is this right now? in terms of what we're seeing around the country at this point in the pandemic?
1: There's a lot of indications that this is not going the right way. Depression, anxiety are have skyrocketed. You have these CDC studies during the pandemic that show 40% of Americans are struggling with at least one mental health problem or drug-related problem. and And it's even worse for young adults. Recently, the CDC asked young adults if they had thought of killing themselves in the last 30 days, and one out of four said they had, which is just a shocking number.
0: So do we know how much this is affecting people all around the country?
1: The most detailed level data is on the county and local city level. So I talked to medical examiners, coroners across the country. In Chicago, for example, they told me some shocking numbers, especially among African-Americans. They're seeing more suicides than they've ever seen in their history. Hmm. And the surprising thing is not just the numbers, but like the age range. They had anywhere from like folks in their 80s and 70s to a nine-year-old boy who who killed himself. And there's that but there are some states where they've even seen a decrease and research shows that that's not that's not abnormal. After 9/11 for example, there's this pulling together effect that happens. So after 9/11 New Yorkers actually saw a decrease in the first few weeks. But what happens over time is especially in economic crises the suicide rate will go up because of the pressures being put on people. So after the Great Recession, for example, the suicide rate increased four times faster than the eight years before it.
0: So clearly the fact that so many Americans are struggling economically right now, I'm sure has something to do with it. But I also wonder, like, what are the specifics of just the experience of being in a pandemic that is also making things so hard for people right now?
1: Suicide is such a complex problem. In any individual case, there's always a whole number of factors that play into it. But almost every kind of factor that increases risk is increasing in this pandemic. So for example, drug use, homelessness, isolation, depression, all of these things are going up during the pandemic. And so as the risk factors go up, the real worry is that suicides will as well, naturally.
0: So why haven't we seen more support for mental health resources during this pandemic?
1: It's a surprising thing how little we've put into mental health. And I think it has to do with Our attention has been on this virus and the physical side of this virus. You know, since the crisis began, we've put 175 billion into hospitals, emergency funding for medical facilities. A fraction of 1% of that amount has gone to mental health and substance abuse. Suicide prevention groups have been begging for this help and they've been pushing really hard for it, but they haven't gotten a very receptive action from Congress. And if you think about the way we've even set up the coronavirus task force, for example, there's not like a single mental health expert on there. When you think there's economists, there's, you know, plenty of, you know, physical doctors, but no one addressing that part of the pandemic.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.
0: So what do suicide prevention groups and families who've lost loved ones say needs to happen?
1: Yeah, there's actually a lot we could do. It's it's kind of both the good news and bad news of it is how many suicides could be prevented by relatively modest interventions. So one thing that kept coming up in research and in conversations is how the simple act of asking people if they've thought of killing themselves is life-saving in itself. So whenever you go to an ER now, you get asked about diabetes, if you smoke, if you just insert whether, you know, you've had suicidal thoughts and you follow up with that, you could cut the risk of suicidal behavior by half.
0: Because then what happens? Like if you if you answer yes to that question, what kicks into place because someone answered yes? Yes.
1: Even if the follow-up intervention is relatively modest, like just a follow-up call from a nurse or even they've tried these things with postcards where they'll just send something following up with recommending a service. Like there are these therapists available. If you just follow up with some kind of action that shows concern and also links them to help, it can cut suicidal behavior by a lot there's other things too. There's, you know, um, a lot of barriers right now to getting that kind of help. Insurance companies are incredibly restrictive on um, what kind of help can be reimbursed, like therapies, medication. If you lowered those barriers, that would do an enormous amount. But also just even having more candid conversations about suicide risk. So a lot of the families I talked to, one of the things they kind of lamented is we don't, why can't we talk to our kids more about mental health? You know, we talk to them about the birds and the bees. We talk to them now about, you know, police and and kind of race in our country. Like mental health and suicide should be one of those things. You don't know what will help your child when they'll need it.
2: Even as something as simple as this, have a piece of paper and a pen. You sit in a conference room with the school. You call each school and say, which kids are high-risk kids, which kids... Should we be helping first in this crisis that we've got? Make a list of them and start calling them. Start helping the parents to make make them aware, hey, you know what? This COVID has really some adverse effects. We don't know when we're going to be able to open the school. But you've got to realize that suicides happen that we've got. And we don't want another suicide in our district. But it just seems like for our local government and our school, hell, I'll even supply the paper and pen. It just seems so simple
0: yet so far away. So are there other things that families or communities could be more aware about in terms of the means by which someone could die by suicide? I know that access to guns can be a risk factor.
1: That's a really key part of it because of how often suicide is an impulsive act. If you limit the means to suicide, it can actually cut suicide rates by a lot and with our country especially, we are a country of firearms, you know. And so in our country, you know, roughly 90% of suicide attempts by guns are fatal. But if you look at any other kind of means of of suicide attempts, you know, only 4% of those result in death. That's just such a huge gap. And so a lot of suicide prevention groups talk about limiting you know means to suicide and when they say that they're talking primarily guns is like a really big issue but it's also one of the most intractable ones in our country the, the reason this comes up in the pandemic is we have had a record pace of gun sales and I think the theory is a lot of that has to do with the fears, you know, of everything we're going through, the election, pandemic, the protests, all of that combined. But with so many guns being sold, a lot of those, the worry is our new time gun owners and the kind of odds of dying by suicide go up by a lot once you own that first gun.
0: So, so what is day-to-day life like for Ted Robbins right now? And how does he try to get through each day.
1: He told me about kind of his daily routine now. He has pictures that he wakes up to of his son by his bedside.
2: And again, being able to celebrate, it's like his Facebook page. I post up a Christian, a story about Christian on his Facebook page every day. So every day I take X amount of time out and I post up a video or a picture and I write a short story um, about that particular time and about that particular picture. Some of it's goofy, like I have Christian fun facts, Um, like when I posted up about his love for turkey burgers. He
1: believes that the way he lives his life now, he wants to honor... Christian's life and what that meant. And so a big part of that now, getting bigger every day, it seems, is like making a difference with other families.
2: That I've got, I I send some some scripture or some messages to specific people that I've got that I'm trying to help and try to support. So I'll do that every morning, which is in my routine.
1: And so he has in his phone a whole kind of list of People he's calling. He calls the girl that he met by Christian's grave um, constantly and checks in on her. There are parents now that call him for advice. He's part of an online support group. And I think that part, the way he described it to me, that part's been especially healing.
2: Because I'm dedicated to now basically serving this and, and, and awareness for mental health now for the rest of my life. Every single day it's working on how can I help somebody else with mental health today? How can I help another parent with awareness, right?
1: Just like a few weeks ago, he told me about this one conversation—a um, father who had just lost his daughter in the pandemic, like just just weeks ago. And through that conversation, you know, the father was facing the exact same questions Ted was: I mean, What if I did this? What if I did that? What did I do wrong? And in the process of this like hour long phone call. Ted kind of found himself saying this thing to the father that he has not, he's just been unable to say to himself. He said, you know, you obviously loved her. You did everything you could. She knew that you loved her and it wasn't your fault.
2: It wasn't my fault. I really tried to help him overall as a parent. He knew that he was loved. He knows that we love him and he loves us that he's got.
1: And I think that... Just being able to work through that with other people has been really helpful to, him, to himself. And so he's put a lot of his energy now into trying to help those families who are struggling, but also trying to help you know, his local school and, and his, his community and leaders trying to bring attention to it, like telling people, we need to do something about this. We can save so many people if we just try.
0: is a national health reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svrnovsky. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK or 800-273-8255. You can also text a crisis counselor by messaging the crisis text line at 741741. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We're going to continue this series on the effects of the pandemic tomorrow with a story about women who left the workforce when juggling childcare and work became impossible. I had made a decision that I was no longer going to beat myself up about whatever type of interaction that I needed to have with my son, which would cause whatever type of performance for my job. I chose my son over my job. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses,